0: I felt that my complete ignorance of economics was a barrier to me when it came to political arguments, which I I love to engage in.
1: This is Oliver Hart, Economic Science Laureate. You're listening to Nobel Prize Conversations.
0: I was a very argumentative type, but I found that I... Um, I lost the argument when the person on the other side brought up some economic issue, like the balance of payments, which I didn't understand at all. And so I thought, well, it would be good to know something about this field.
1: You just heard economic science laureate Oliver Hart. I'm Fanny Sam, the producer of Nobel Prize Conversations. Imagine you're married. Before tying the knot, you never discuss children with your partner. With time, it turns out your partner doesn't want children, but you do. This disagreement deeply disappoints you. However, nothing in the contract you signed on your wedding day said anything about children. Legally, everything is fine. No one formally broke the contract. But the two of you still have to deal with this situation in order to move forward. Contracts are everywhere in society, and the example of children and marriage is just one example that shows that many contracts are, as Oliver Hart would say, incomplete. In 2016, he was awarded the Nobel Memorial Prize in Economic Sciences, together with the Finnish economist Bengt Holmström for his contribution to what's called contract theory. The host for the Nobel Prize Conversations podcast is Adam Smith. Adam is the chief scientific officer at Nobel Media, an outreach arm of the Nobel Prize. This podcast series is brought to you with support from Riksbanken, the Swedish central bank. So here comes a conversation about the importance of words and language for a researcher, how being good at economics is about learning to think like an economist, and how Oliver Hart's parents influenced him to think that anyone who's not left-wing is an idiot.
2: Your parents were doctors, I think, is that right? That's right. So, uh, interesting that both parents were doctors, male and female, I guess, totally normal now. Was it normal then?
0: Uh, No, it was not. I think my mother was, uh, you know, very early, in, as far as female doctors were concerned, in the UK. So she was uh, German-born, but she moved to Britain in 1933 and met my father and qualified as, as a doctor, I think, in the early 50s. No, that was... Quite unusual, hmm. uh, yeah, and and a and a struggle. I, <laughs> I think
2: <laughs> was it a very intellectual household?
0: In some ways, yes. I mean, definitely. I wouldn't say. Um, I mean, compared to some things you read about, I would. I wouldn't say so. I mean, my father was very. He was a researcher, and and he had general interest, but he wasn't the kind of person who, you know, read everything. Or um, he he had particular things he liked. And my mother wasn't so much of a, a reader, so intellectual but not incredibly so.
2: Would you say they were a very strong influence on you, your parents?
0: Undoubtedly. I mean, I was an only child, so I, I you know, that was the environment they provided. The environment it was a happy one. I mean, they were very good parents, but there were. I would say, you know, if if there'd been someone else around, like a sibling, you know, I would have probably uh, had other influences. Uh, they they were. Quite left-wing, and I got a very left-wing point of view growing up. You know, I always thought anybody on the other side must be an idiot. (laughs) I'm not sure that was so useful. I I learned that there were other perspectives as I got older, and particularly from studying economics about which my parents did not know much. I mean, that was the thing. My father was a scientist. He was a very serious scientist and quite a distinguished scientist, but um, he, he didn't um, really know anything about economics, as I think is true of quite a few <laughs> scientists, actually. It was only, you know, that's why I had to study the subject to learn about the benefits of markets, you know.
2: It's an interesting topic, the, the divide between economics and other sciences, because I'm always struck that listening to economists talk about economics and listening to physicists talk about phys- physics th- the language is very similar the, the obviously very similar thought processes are going on and the people who are doing the work feel that they're approaching it in very similar ways but it is true that there are there is there is perhaps a divide there talk more about it please
0: I'm talking particularly about my father because my mother was a gynaecologist, so she was working more with with practical people, hands-on people, um, doctors. Whereas my, my father was, um, you know, publishing papers in learned journals, and uh, um, he knew many very eminent scientists, and so I, I met lots of prominent people. But the circle, my father's circle, was, as I say, pretty left-wing. You know, say pharmaceutical companies, these would be baddies. I think a lot of scientists, (laughs) you know, they think that it's all about making money and they're they're taking advantage of everybody and so on. And, uh, I mean, I'm now putting on, you know, my current hat, imagining talking to them then. uh, And, you know, I would say, well, there's another way of looking at it, which is pharmaceutical companies spend billions of dollars Um, trying to find cures to things and uh, most of it doesn't work and occasionally they have a success. So, you know, maybe it's necessary that they make a lot of money in those cases to offset all all the failures. This is something, by the way, it's not restricted to scientists. I mean, when you hear the Democratic presidential candidates, I mean, they also attack big pharma, you know. And it's all about, you know, profit. Isn't profit awful? But we economists know that Profit is a, is also a drive of good things.
2: What attracted you to economics? I know you were a mathematician and you were good at math, so...
0: Yes, I, I did a math degree at Cambridge. When I was at school, I thought, you know, I wanted to be a mathematician. I suppose I didn't think too far ahead, but that was the thing that I, I liked most, and I was good at it.
1: When Oliver Hart was eight, his parents applied for admission to an elite school in their neighbourhood. Part of the admission process, he recalls, was a personal interview with the headmaster of the junior school. The headmaster asked young Oliver to solve a long division problem. Oliver showed him his answer, but he said there was a mistake. Young Oliver disagreed and turned out to be right, and he was admitted. He learned a few things from this incident. That he already had some intellectual self-confidence, and that even though he was quite shy, he was stubborn. And reasonably good at mathematics.
0: But, you know, when I got to Cambridge, I realised, first, there were people who were much better. Uh, Second, I actually found doing mathematics all day, every day for three years, um, quite dull. I mean, of course, I didn't do it all day, every day. I, I actually didn't work that hard. But I i found, uh, you know, I did other things, but not academic things. So I, I think looking back on my first degree at Cambridge, I could have usefully you know, acquired some some other skills, such as learning how to write, <laughs> which I never did. Uh, there was no writing in the mathematics tripos, you know, of words. And um I just I found the constant diet of well particularly applied mathematics I didn't like the way it was taught at Cambridge it was all um, electromagnetism and fluid dynamics and differential equations I got very bored with that I like the pure mathematics more but anyway uh to cut a long story short when I graduated um you know the question was what to do next I was clearly not they're going to make it as a professional mathematician, but I, you know, I didn't want to get a job. I've said I said this in my Nobel essay. Um, you know, it was 1969, and uh, somehow, you know, it was a radical time, and getting a real job didn't seem attractive. So, uh, and people said that mathematics was being used in economics in interesting ways, and so I thought that would be a good, you know, so why, why not apply it to that? Also, um, I felt that my complete ignorance of economics was a barrier to me when it came to political arguments, which I I love to engage in. But uh, I was a very argumentative type, but I found that I I lost the argument when the person on the other side brought up some economic issue like the balance of payments, which I didn't understand at all. Mm. And so I thought, well, it would be good to know something about This field. So anyway, the two things came together, and uh, I applied to do a master's degree in economics at at Warwick, which ended up ended up being a two year uh, as opposed to one year course because it took me one year to kind of catch up, um, and and then one year to do the master's degree. So it was a kind of conversion.
2: When you embarked on that, did you have thoughts of becoming an academic in some way, or were you really, as you say, just driven by interest and? the desire to want to know how to argue better.
0: I think I didn't look that far ahead, you (laughs) know. It was one step at a time. At Warwick, I you know, that's where I began to realise, well, maybe this is something I actually can do well, or, you know, might be able to do well at. Having a mathematics background seemed a tremendous advantage. Um, But of course, over time, I realised you also have to learn to think as an economist, and that took some years. But You know, things sort of went well and I thought, um, well, why not carry on with this? But I wasn't looking that far ahead.
2: Hmm. Can you define what you mean by learn to think as an economist?
0: Yeah. um, Well, it's a hard thing to, to, to define exactly. But I think the point is that particularly if you come at it from mathematics, I mean, you quickly realize there are these, you know, Mathematical analyses of economic problems and you might actually be quite good at, at, um, you know, manipulating the formulae or the equations or whatever. But that's not the same as thinking about what it all means and sort of standing back. I'll give you an example of this. When I got to Princeton where I did my PhD, um, at some point I became a teaching assistant for – a visiting professor who was actually a famous economist called Al Harberger. And he taught a course, an intermediate microeconomics course, where he didn't use any significant mathematics at all. There was no calculus. This was actually um, quite a shock to me. So um, in England, if you're going to do economics, you would do mathematics a day levels. And I'm sure that's still the case. So it's kind of taken for granted that anybody studying economics... Knows calculus. Mm-hmm. Um, I, of course, have done a mathematics degree, which was much more than that. But, but just any economics student would be expected to know how to differentiate things and so on. But you know, the U.S. system is different because it's a liberal arts system, and so people who are doing a, a, a major in economics they might do a bit of mathematics. But they might not, and it might not be very much. So there isn't the same assumption that uh, an undergraduate in an economics course will know calculus. And so at Princeton, they actually – and I think this may even still be the case. They'll have courses for people who don't know calculus, which may be quite advanced in economics. Anyway, this was one such course, uh, and I was the teaching assistant. So I had to teach people – what monopolists do. So, you know, economists uh, no, uh, argue uh, that, you know, monopolists face a downward sloping demand curve and they also have costs. And the optimal quantity and price for a, uh, a monopolist, well, the quantity is where marginal revenue equals marginal cost. And I don't know whether your listeners – I mean most many of them will – be familiar with this, but some won't. But it, Probably you not, can write no. this down mathematically as a first order condition, mm-hmm. you know, using calculus. You're maximizing revenue minus cost and uh, both depend on quantity and you write down the first order conditions and that gives you marginal revenue equals marginal cost. But when I was teaching it to these undergraduates, I couldn't do that uh, and and Harberger didn't do that. Instead, he did it in words. And I had to explain marginal revenue equals marginal cost in words. And what I realized is that when I was forced to do that, I also increased my my, my understanding of it, deepened. Having to explain it in words meant I really understood what was going on beyond some... Um, mathematical formula. It was actually very educational. Uh, you know, a good economist can explain what they are doing, even if there's quite an abstract argument associated with it, which is actually very important to kind of formalise it and, and make sure it's right and all that sort of thing. At the end of it all, they can stand back and give you a kind of verbal description of it all. But to do that, you have to understand. You you, you have to develop another way of thinking. It's not something a mathematician who's new to economics can do. Mm. They have to learn to do it. And sometimes they never do learn. Mm. (laughs) Uh, Because
2: it's funny that you said that you hadn't been taught how to write uh, when you were doing maths at Cambridge. But obviously you were good at expressing your thoughts verbally, which must be connected in some ways, I would have thought.
0: No, I – well, to the extent – I can do it now. Let me, let me just say one other thing about thinking as an economist. It's about intuition, giving the intuition for things. Also, it's a kind of test because once you've expressed the intuition, sometimes you realize, you know, this just doesn't sound right at all or it sounds like some second-order effect rather than a first-order effect, you know. Mm. So that's another part of it.
2: And that can be a that it can...
0: It's a learning process. I would say it takes some years and some people uh, are not very good at it. And end up, you know, people with good math skills can still end up being technical without really uh, producing much understanding because they can't sort of cross that divide. But back to being articulate or not, I mean, to the extent that i become articulate, somewhat articulate, it it was a... A lengthy process. When I when I emerged from Cambridge, I was extremely inarticulate. It wasn't just a matter of not being able to write; I couldn't express myself well. Now, I, th- I think this was something about me. I because a lot of people, uh, you know, learn these skills at school, and for some reason, I didn't. I don't know who to blame. I can blame the school, I can blame my parents, or I can blame myself. Probably it's the last. <laughs> but um, when I finally emerged from Cambridge and started doing economics, I mean, there I had to write in English and and explain things. And it was... Um, and then particularly when I got to... Uh, actually, was became much a, a much bigger thing when I got to Princeton because then, uh, you know, I was doing a PhD. I was going to have to write a thesis, uh, write papers, and um, I had to learn how to do it, really almost from scratch. Well, um,
2: at Princeton,
0: you found... Your wife, yes Peter Goldberg, who's a
2: literature professor, so yes. did that produce a radical change in your own writing?
0: Absolutely. <laughs> uh, she was uh, enormously helpful. I bothered her all the time with questions. Right. about what a good sentence was and, you know, should I put a comma there? Or I, I think I've written that she taught me the joys of the semicolon. Uh, I now see someone's actually written a book about the semicolon. I just, just saw it, a review. Of it. <laughs> I don't know whether I want to read it, though, because I, I like the semicolon and I use it. <laughs> I don't want to change the way I use it. You know, I, I actually think I've become, I mean, I'm going to, compliment myself a little. I think I'm a pretty good writer now of economic stuff, but I never, you know, I started from a very low level, very low, and over time, over time, I've realized, you know, how important it is to look at every sentence, everyone, and, and and sort of re- think, well, is that the best way to put it? Does it, is everyone going to understand that? Um, can I get rid of some words there, you know? Hmm slim it down, all this sort of thing um, I knew nothing about when I started. But um, I realized how important that is to uh, get your points across.
2: How important is literature to you in general, uh, other people's writing, not on economics but on everything else?
0: Well, um, Rita has um, enlarged my horizons, broadened my horizons, Greatly, because she's a huge reader of literature and history and all sorts of things, and and I've certainly moved in that direction. But I'm not a huge reader, I have to say. Um, so although those things are important to me, I mean they're very the arts are very important to me. But I I'm also a bit lazy, and so you know when I get home at night after working quite hard. On my economics, um, you know, my my way to relax is to turn on the TV. I'm afraid often. I mean, I do I do read as well. I'm try I try to have a book that I'm reading at any time, but I'm not a voracious reader.
2: One can learn a lot from the TV too. <laughs>
0: well, my colleagues never admit to watching it. Uh, you know, <laughs> most of them.
2: The brightest person I know says she learned everything she knows from TV, and I kind of I believe her. So, <laughs> I guess it depends how you watch. As in all things, it depends how hard you concentrate.
0: Oh. yes, but I'm a, I'm kind of lowbrow winning. I mean, I I I love, you know, I I also love music and I I play the piano a bit. huh After many years of not, I I I played the piano as a kid, uh, and I've resumed it and I have a teacher who's excellent. It's something I do on and off, I mean, not as much as I should, I'm not, uh, I'm not one of these um, multi-talented people, you know, mm. uh, but I, I do, I love listening to music.
2: I just want to ask you about music quickly, but I also want to talk about multi-talents or otherwise. Um, what do you like to play on the piano? Uh,
0: right now, well, I, I, I play classical music, I'm playing Schumann right now, Um his, Um, I can't say it in German, but it is children's pieces. He has a collection. Yes. Yeah, I'm trying to... I'm working my way through them with my teacher, Jennifer. Yeah.
2: People tell me Schumann is quite hard to interpret well, so... Uh,
0: Well, (laughs) I probably (laughs) am not. I can listen to, you know, people like Horowitz playing it, playing the same pieces. And some of the way, you know, one or two of the ones that, when I played, it doesn't sound like a completely different piece from the one he's playing. But then other ones he plays much faster, and I can't do that. But it's enjoyable, and um, yeah, I I like it.
2: I have a feeling that sort of multi-talented is a little bit in opposition to being able to do the sort of work the quantity and, I suppose, the quality of work that laureates have to do to get as much done as they do. Do you think that's in general true, that it's pretty much impossible to be uh, to do many things and to do one thing as well as you really need to if you want to be at the top of the tree in, for instance, economics?
0: I mean, that must be true to some extent, but I also I, am I, now going to mention another book. Uh, So, I don't read (laughs) that many books. I read the reviews. Uh, I saw another book that's just come out about this very issue. Um, I think the author compares Roger Federer with Tiger Woods or something. I mean, but it's also about Nobel laureates. Apparently, um, I think Nobel laureates are much more likely than most people to have be really strong in some other activities or, or, or engage in them. I'm, I'm not sure which. But uh, somehow the book is uh, – Roger Federer was someone who as a kid was good at many sports and then he chose tennis. Uh, it's not the same as saying he now does many things. You know, he doesn't – he's not playing golf a lot at the moment but uh, or basketball or whatever it was he could have done. But he, he was – he had the potential to do many things in sports. Um, Tiger Woods, on the other hand, apparently was just, you know, it was golf, golf, golf. So I think, um, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, I mean, people who are very good at one thing also often do seem to, you know, to be talented in other areas as well.
2: Absolutely. But, and maybe I I phrased it wrong because it's not really, it's not really the talent. The gift is the ability to focus on one of the talents, no matter how many you have.
0: Yes, yes. That, well, that's right. I think, um... There's uh, eventually you have to do that, but there are people, you know, my colleague Eric Maskin, who is a Nobel laureate uh, and a colleague in Harvard, I mean, he's a very good musician, yes, and br- he plays I, 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 I go to concerts. Yes, he gives, you know, and they're extremely good. Now, he didn't become a professional musician. He, maybe he could have done. his brother is, so, but um, he still spends quite a bit of time on that. Maybe more now. I mean, I'll have to talk to him. Maybe you will. Uh, maybe more now than when he was uh, doing the work that won him the prize.
2: May I ask, do you the, the focus? Do you ever find it hard to focus on the questions you're dealing with, and feel tempted to sort of branch out and try these other things, or is it just always? Totally fulfilling to be thinking about your own subject, which again is something I think perhaps is true of Lawrence, that they, the gift is that they, they don't want to be distracted because they're so happy doing what they do.
0: Yes, uh, a good question. I would say I've always wanted to focus on my the particular you know the particular things I, I've worked on. I've never been tempted. Uh, to branch out that much. I mean I when I was uh, when I started out in economics I did work on a number of topics. I mean they weren't you know a million miles away from each other but um I was looking around for different things and I eventually settled uh, in about 1983 um on this topic the firm theory of the firm nature of the firm incomplete contracts. So you know at that point I was um 34 or something. And I have pretty much worked on only that since then because I decided, you know, this is really interesting and I think I have something to say about it. So I've been very, very focused, sort of monomaniacal about this. It hasn't always been, you know, pure joy (laughs) because it's been quite tough. Uh, I think progress in this area has been slow. Initially, I wrote a paper with uh, Sanford Grossman that – People thought was was good, very good, and that uh, you know, and I and then I continued my work with John Moore, and we had some you know kind of initial successes. But then there was pushback on the foundations of this, the um, work we were doing on incomplete contracts, the theory we were developing, and. And, um, because uh, you know, partly because of that, I think quite a few younger people were put off working in this area. And so there were years where I felt a bit alone. <laughs> and so although I kept going, it wasn't that I went to the office every day, you know, kind of singing. These days, actually, I feel much better about it. And, of course, <laughs> the prize is one reason. But I also... I'm continuing my work on this, and I in, a, in I think a way that is productive. And it, it, there's an interesting story connected to this because it's a, a result of the Nobel Prize. Um, when I was in Stockholm for the week, uh, about which you know very well, which is a no, most extraordinary uh, occasion, and you know, there's just nothing like it. <laughs> um, it's utterly overwhelming. But one of the things is one gets invitations. To so all sorts of things during that week, most of which, you know, you can't do or you don't want to do. But there was one invitation I got, which looked interesting, which was to a law firm in Stockholm. Um, they asked me, the person there asked me to come and speak about my work on contracts. And so I thought, well, why not? And anyway, the person who invited me, uh, David Friedlinger, we, we hit it off. And he felt that my more recent work, which was not, so much focus by the prize committee, uh, which which introduces some behavioral elements into contract theory and some notions of um, fairness and, and that kind of thing. And those ideas really resonated with him as a practitioner. And it turns out he was with his client basically saying they should write contracts where they uh, take fairness ideas very seriously and in- indeed incorporate what he and others have called guiding principles. So write a formal contract but then include as part of the formal contract that the parties agree to use guiding principles of equity, loyalty, reciprocity, autonomy, honesty, integrity. There's a a list of them. Basically, what they're saying is that any contract they write is going to be incomplete. And so stuff's going to happen during the course of their their business relationship, which, you know, the contract won't – Won't have anticipated. And so the question is, what do they do then? Mm. And the idea is they've agreed in advance to use these guiding principles. So not to be just self-interested, but actually to to take into account the position of the other party and kind of try to sort it out. And although this may sound kind of fanciful, um, it turns out that this has been very successful, this approach. But it lacked a theoretical foundation, uh, which he discovered in my work. And so together we've been working and we have a paper coming out. Um, in the Harvard Business Review on this, but we also have a more academic piece which is about to see the light of day. And um, anyway, the point is, I'm I'm quite excited about this. I don't know, you know, what the reaction will be about, from my economics um, colleagues, but um, you know, when I work on this, I I feel <laughs> some some joy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, just to step back. I mean, people probably don't
2: think very much about contracts at all i mean the only time you do think about a contract perhaps is when it's incomplete and it goes wrong and then you have a problem sorting out what wasn't covered by it you recognize their importance as a lens with which to study firms and the interactions that go on in inside firms and between firms
0: yes and also um They're useful, you know, for individuals as well. I mean, we we all have contractual relationships and um, thinking about how they work and how they could work better, um, you know, contracting ideas can be helpful. I mean, even something like marriage, you know, is a kind of contract.
1: A little reminder of Oliver Hart's work here. He has dedicated most of his career to contract theory that studies the legal deals that bind individuals and businesses, such as employers and employees, or companies and customers. Hart focuses on improving the design of what he calls incomplete contracts. That is, things will happen that the parties cannot foresee when they start out.
0: The whole point is, once one introduces other factors like the importance... um, of the parties feeling that the outcome is a reasonable one. And as I say, I've particularly stressed this with respect to an incomplete contract. So you write a contract and then later on um, something happens which you didn't foresee and you have to adjust. And the importance of both parties feeling that after the adjustment, well, that was reasonable – we tackle that problem reasonably. We feel the outcome is reasonable. That's important because after that, you know, they're still dealing with each other. It's not the end of the relationship. So going forward, um, you want your counterparty uh, not to be aggrieved because if they are aggrieved, if they feel uh, that the, what happened wasn't fair, then they'll, t- they'll find some way. They'll take it out on you in some way maybe not even realizing they're doing it, but they're just, you know, the relationship is a bit sad. Well, so this idea then, uh, it's looking at it differently from the way lawyers have classically looked at it, where it's all all about rights and obligations. And, you know, if you agree to supply a widget to me at this price, then that's it. I have the right to it. And, uh, you know, if, if circumstances have changed and you feel that I should adjust the contract, I can just totally ignore that. But maybe in in the real world, I can't ignore it because although I can hold you to that, uh, maybe the widget won't be as good because you'll be annoyed with me. Or maybe the next widget won't be, you know, going forward, things won't be as good. Well, I think this way of thinking about things can be helpful in lots of contexts, including I'm going to come back to uh, something like marriage. But all, all relationships of any length, uh, there's some, there's something like a contract or an agreement uh, behind them, and sometimes it's implicit, sometimes it's it's explicit.
2: I wanted to ask about another recent piece of work, which is your work on shareholder welfare versus yeah. shareholder profit. Again, moving from something that is rather sort of <laughs> hard and fast, a, a Friedman view of the firm just generating profit to something that is more if you like generous where the firm is interested in the well-being of everybody could you explain a little bit about this
0: so i think the easiest way to understand this is suppose you were a hundred percent owner of a company you ran your own company if you're a pro-social person you would i think want your company also to behave decently
1: Let's do a brief resume here of Hart's more recent work on shareholders' welfare. Hart and his colleague Luigi Cingales asked the question what the objective of a large firm should be. And basically they say that shareholders, people with votes in firms, are like you and me. In our ordinary lives, we're not only interested in money, but also in, let's say, the environment or workers' conditions. Maybe we we'll buy fair trade chocolate, even though it's more expensive. Why wouldn't shareholders then want the companies to behave in the same manner? Hart develops an example.
0: Let's take an example where the company could uh, make a bit more money, but in doing that it would would cause some pollution. Hmm. You're the 100% owner of this company, and let's suppose the law allows you to do this. Uh, we could be talking about pollution in another country where they have weak laws. And so you, you wouldn't be breaking any law if you made more money, but um, hurt the environment a bit. You might actually decide as a moral person that you don't feel comfortable with that and you're not going to do it. That doesn't seem uh, in any way extraordinary behavior. Well, if that's true of a 100% owner, uh, it's also going to be true if you're a, you know, 0.01% owner in a company, you would want your company also to behave in a way that reflects your own uh, social preferences. So this is can be seen as a little bit of an attack on Milton Friedman.
1: So who's Friedman? Economist Milton Friedman wrote a famous article in 1962... ...arguing that businesses only have one social responsibility. Basically to increase profits so long as it stays within the rules of the game... ...and leave governments and individuals to handle social issues. At the time, charity was the big thing. Friedman argued that individuals could give to charity themselves... ...instead of companies doing so. But if a company, for example, pollutes rivers in another country it's hard for individuals themselves to clean those rivers. It's better done at a company level, Hart and Singales would argue.
0: Milton Friedman, in a famous article published in the New York Times magazine, of all places, argued that uh, business people should just keep their heads down and focus on the bottom line and let individuals and governments deal with social issues. And he made quite a powerful argument, a powerful case for this. At the time, the big issue was charitable contributions by companies. And he said, well, it's a big mistake for a company to give to charity because and here I'm paraphrasing a bit a bit, but this is a basic idea. Um, Think of that money that they're going to give to a charity. Wouldn't it be better for them to hand that money to their shareholders in the form of a higher dividend, and then each shareholder can decide what portion of that extra dividend to give to their favorite charity. The company does not have a comparative advantage in in giving to charity. Um, It's something much better done at the individual level. In fact, um, you know, if it's done at the company level, it's probably going to go to the CEO's favorite charity. Hmm. Well, this is very persuasive. Just to say, I mean, Friedman did not deny the importance of of ethics or, or or pro-social behavior. He was just saying it's not best done at the company level. I think it's convincing for the case of charities, uh, charitable contributions. It's not convincing for other things because when it comes uh, to, you know, let's take my example of the pollution um there, the company does have a comparative advantage in not polluting because, you know, in contrast to the, the charity case, if the company makes more money and pollutes and then hands the extra money to the shareholders, you know, for the shareholders individually then to say, oh, we don't like that pollution. We're going to clean it up. Well, you know, the cost of cleaning it up might be much greater than the, you know, the extra profit that um, was generated by polluting in the first place. Yes, um, It's not like charities where you can just have the, you know, the individuals can do whatever the company does. Yeah. The individuals cannot easily clean up pollution that a company causes. Um, and so, um, okay, so this led us to the conclusion that companies should actually not just say, oh, our job is to generate as much money as possible. They should actually um, ask their shareholders Uh, you know, what their preferences are and uh, actually behave in a perhaps more socially responsible way.
2: Because, of course, the idea of ethical investment has been around for a while. But what you're suggesting is that the shareholders have a direct influence on the individual company's behavior.
0: Exactly. It's a little different and and maybe sometimes even a little in conflict with, um, I think, what you're talking about, which is the idea which is quite popular now that, um, you know, you could – Perhaps if, you, if you're an ethical investor, you will just you will invest only in ethical companies. So you know you'll pick green companies um, and not dirty companies. So uh, this has led to you know so let's say an index fund. It's it's not fully indexed because it will in the index it won't have every company. It'll dump out the dirty companies. Uh, you'll have a well-diversified portfolio if, invest- if you invest in that fund, but it'll just be over green companies. So that's sort of like a- a disengaging. You, you get rid of, you sell your shares in dirty companies. We're suggesting something different, which is you keep your shares in dirty companies, but you actually try to ch- make them less dirty, make hmm. them greener. And
2: final thought you, you, on this question, you trust that shareholders, if given the
0: choice, would, if you like, make the world a better place? Well, we have to find out. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it, I realize sometimes when it comes to guns, who knows? I mean, uh, you know, America's a pretty strange country. Uh, I, I have a feeling that that shareholders, I, well, I don't know. I mean, you know, one view is that half of them are for gun control and half of them are against and so it would cancel out or further gun control. But I'm not sure that's true. Um, we would have to see. When it comes to the environment and, and climate change, I have I think the majority uh, probably would vote for uh, taking climate more seriously. And, and so this would be a case where companies like BP and Shell and whatever might find that they're under pressure from their shareholders to move in a, a clean direction. More pressure... Then the government can summon, you know, given that we have paralysis at the government level, um, particularly in the U.S.
1: This podcast was produced by Phil Hinterland for Nobel Media. The host was Adam Smith, and the producer was me, Fanny Harjestam. Music by Epidemic Sound. Make sure to visit the official website, NobelPrize.org, for more in-depth content on the laureate's awarded work.
0: If you're passionate about the Nobel Prize, you won't want to miss a single episode of our podcast. Be sure to subscribe. We're available on Acast, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, GeoSarven, Spotify and many, many more popular platforms.